Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy Marty here to introduce this week's episode of Tales from the Crypt, an incredibly interesting conversation I had with Brian Bishop uh, about Bitcoin vaults uh, and many other Bitcoin-related topics in the first quarter to, to half of the episode, but then about halfway through, we were, we were joined by uh, Brian's friend, Joe Jackson, uh, from the biotechandbeyond.com. It's a uh, it's a life science incubator in North San Diego, and the conversation shifted from Bitcoin to transhumanism. I have never really approached the subject of transhumanism, uh, and it seems that that Brian and Joe uh, have been enthusiasts for years. Uh, so they so they uh, educated me about what's going on in the transhumanism world, what it could potentially do, and and their thoughts on that subject. So definitely stick to the end of the episode because it is very interesting uh and i guess you'll learn a little bit more than than just bitcoin uh but before we get started have to give a shout out to the cash app you freaks already know all about them they're helping us stack sats they're helping us save money at their at merchants out there with their boost program for those of you who don't know about the boost program it's the coolest thing since sliced bread uh, you get a personalized card you put a little signature on it. it's a black card it looks hot when you're out spending it at merchants people take a second look at you like whoa what kind of card is this and then you initiate a boost depending on where you want to go whether that's uh chick-fil-a whole foods doordash coffee shops i know we're sad about the coffee shop boost uh being uh less effective than it was a few weeks ago but hey it's still there still able to use it after five tries you'll be begin saving dollars at your local coffee shops excuse me excusing saving one dollar at a time at local coffee shops um, and then on top of that, of course, they have the Bitcoin capabilities. You can buy and sell Bitcoin on the Cash App. You can send it off the app, and you can send Bitcoin to the app as well. Uh, sending off the app is BEC32 compatible at this point, and they have a beautiful UI that makes it very easy to buy Bitcoin. There's only one Bitcoin to buy. They're not confusing with many options of different forks. It's the one and only, the true Bitcoin. Uh, use the code STACKINGSATS. That's one word, STACKINGSATS, S-T-A-C-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. When you first download, you're going to get $5, and then $5 is going to go to Owls Lacrosse, uh, which is a charity near and dear to our heart here at TFTC. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I know I did. We sh- we uh, recorded in the, the lobby of a hotel, so if there's some background noise, too bad. I think the, the background ambience is, is pretty nice, actually. Um, I haven't listened to the audio before recording this podcast or excuse me this ad but i'm hoping it's okay i don't think it should be too bad um but learn about bitcoin and transhumanism enjoy what is up freaks welcome back to tales from the crypt it's your boy marty bent here in a hotel lobby 45 minutes late for this interview i uh Booked this on Google Calendar on the East Coast, thinking the time would would stay steady across time zones, but that's not the case. The time, time zones are really an archaic concept. They're they completely are. broken. We need to get down the block time. That's right. And uh, you freaks have just been introduced to this week's guest. It's Brian Bishop. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me here. AKA Conjure on Twitter. Uh, prolific transcriber. Uh, has worked at LedgerX. Recently... Um, released the proposal for Bitcoin vaults, which is something I'm insanely interested in and fascinated by. Um, but before we get into all the nitty gritty of the details we're going to talk about, Brian, 
the way this podcast works out is we usually uh, get the tale. How did you find Bitcoin? What drew you towards Bitcoin? And how did you find it, basically? So I actually found out about Bitcoin very early on. I found out on January 2009, January 10th, 2009. Holy shit. Yeah. I, well, I was subscribed to the one of the mailing lists that Satoshi Nakamoto sent his original emails to. Uh, he had sent a few earlier in like 2008 or something to um, Perry Metzger's uh, cryptography mailing list. But I was actually on Mitchell Bowen's uh, peer-to-peer foundation mailing list. And um, at the time, though, I, uh, I actually made a public comment about Bitcoin when I looked at it. And I said, uh, quote, this is yet another piece of crap. Boss. And, and the reason why I said that was because at the time, Bitcoin only ran on Microsoft Windows. And as a programmer, I... I basically felt that you can't be serious about a financial revolution if you're only running on Windows. That just didn't <laughs> seem legitimate to me. What were the responses to that comment like? Oh, uh, I, got, I, I had some agreement, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And what? what um, so, so anyway, it wasn't until a few years later that I got uh, very deeply involved in Bitcoin development and things like that. Yeah. So you, but you were a, a young buck coming on that. Uh, yeah. At the time, I was, I was 19. Yeah. Is that... Um, What's it like being on this mailing list at a young age? Like, oh, I mean, first of all, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog, so it totally mm-hmm. doesn't matter, and everyone uh, just just wants you to do great work, and if you don't, they yell at you. <laughs> Does that take getting used to the yelling at? Oh, I, it's sort of a personality detail. I mean, like, I mean, it's not really yelling. Some people interpret it as yelling. I personally don't, but I, I can I can easily see how some people might. Yeah, and it's um, we were doing a little pre-interview talk here. The way you got into programming is actually something. Uh, oh. That resonates well with me. Pokemon Red and Poke- or was it Fire and Water or Red and Blue? It was just Red it, and Blue. It was it was Red and Blue, um, and it was back in when I was in middle school, and um, I was using something called the Game Shark device, and this was a cheating device that allowed you uh, to access the RAM of the game in progress, and actually beyond the RAM, you could also modify the source code or the, or the code as well. Um, and essentially, my interest in programming uh, evolved out of that. Um, in fact, in um, around 2012, I started working with a few people online on a project that has since become the, uh, in my opinion, the second largest uh, video game reverse engineering project in the world. Whoa. And it's the source code to the Pokemon games. Really? Yeah. You yeah. are the one who put that online? Uh, well, I mean, there was a few, like two other primary people with me. But yeah. And what's the community like that like now? Oh, it's it's actually really interesting. I mean, Community there's still around. like a large fan base that is interested in like modifying these games and just seeing what they can do and, and learning about programming and things like that. And you know, in 2012, I, I went back to that to to look at that and get the source code because I was I was just curious to see. You know, now that I know a lot more about programming, you know, I'm not in middle school anymore and I actually know what a pointer is or something. You know, what can I do now that I wasn't able to do then? And uh, you know, being able to get source code out of this and being able to comment it and and get um, good variable names and function names uh, was really interesting. I mean, there was all sorts of things in there. Like, like one of the myths on the school playground is that like if you pressed one of the buttons fast enough, it would like cause your catch rate to go up or something. Mm-hmm. So you, yeah, yeah, yeah you or had more damage while you're in a fight or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, it turns out that's that's not true. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I checked. I was one of those kids. <laughs> <laughs> kids are so gullible. Yeah. There's there's a beauty to that gullibility, also, but so what is, what is like the most fascinating thing you've seen somebody build with this open source? Oh, um, so the most fascinating is a um, something called the ROM hack. It's a completely custom game. 
made by a pseudonymous individual named Cool Boy Man. And um, this game took him, I, I think it was over f uh, somewhere between four and seven years to make. And um, it, it uh, was finally released. And upon release, where he you know, gave it away for free to the world, Nintendo, of course, sent him a cease and desist letter, uh, as, as, they, as they do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and did he have to shut it down, or was it like open source? Oh yeah, at that he, point? he took that offline. Yeah. Oh yeah. But anyway, it was it was one of the uh, it, was, it was just amazing what what basically one guy, and then eventually a few other people joined him. But one what one guy you know could get done on his own. It was just really impressive. So what were the types of things that he was doing? Was he like making the game? It, it, it was it was essentially an entirely new game, okay. but with the same style of graphics and the same game engine. Okay. So what's that? Eight bit graphics or no? Nah. Yeah. So, all right, back to Bitcoin. You made this comment on the mailing list, and you said it took you a few more years to get back into it. What sort of dragged you back in? So what dragged me into Bitcoin, actually, was the developers. Or, more accurately, it was programming in general. I, I was quite skeptical about, like, banking and money. Like, if, if money didn't exist, and there was a startup that, that came around, and they started to say, hey, here's little green pieces of paper, it's called money, everyone would laugh them out of the room because the concept's completely ridiculous. And I saw in Bitcoin, I was like, oh, wait, this is like code. There's like real code here. It actually does something. Uh, and this is something I can understand and contribute to. And, and that's how I just got sucked into it. Where was the first place you started contributing? Um. I, I remember that I was primarily like, it, it started with... I. I was talking with like Bitcoin core developers on IRC and I was complaining about like, like uh, there was these um, uh, altcoin projects or not even altcoins, like a few were like file storage services or something. And they were making all these preposterous claims on the internet. And I was going to like, I remember I was going to like Greg Maxwell and saying, this is wrong, isn't it? How can these people just say wrong things on the internet? And he just laughed and said, welcome to the, welcome to Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> so how, How's your understanding of Bitcoin changed since you first got into it? And sort of what? Well, I, I suppose what's interesting about Bitcoin um, in terms of my journey is that uh, I was not originally exposed to any of the uh, monetary economic theories, actually. I was uh, uh, completely greenfield when it came to, the, to that subject. Um, so that, that was certainly something interesting to learn. And one of the other interesting things to observe is that early on in Bitcoin, a lot of people were claiming that Bitcoin was completely anonymous. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that it isn't. And what happened was that people who adopted Bitcoin early on, some people were not developers and did not read the source code, just simply didn't know what, what this thing actually does. And so as a result, we had like for quite a while uh, very significant just falsities floating around. And honestly, that's really harmful if for someone to use Bitcoin and think it's completely private and it's not. That's that's actively dangerous and harmful. Yeah, no, it's probably probably the biggest cause if there is impediment of Bitcoin's progress, which is debatable. Like it has made a lot of progress over the last decade, but narrative-wise, like the the fast and free transactions that are made anonymously was uh, was a, a was a trope that that was treaded out for for years yeah that's another one free transactions yeah i mean they're not free there's actually a transaction fee there is literally something in the protocol called the transaction fee and why is that necessary in your mind 
Well, the transaction fee is uh, necessary for uh, paying miners for their work, and the idea is that eventually the Bitcoin system will be completely powered by the fee market instead of the Bitcoin subsidy, which is rapidly decreasing over time. Are you confident in uh, Bitcoin's ability to survive on a fee market? Well, yes, I am. And in particular, the reason why I'm confident about this is that I actually believe that in the future, when Bitcoin is even more successful than it already is, that people will be willing to pay obscene amounts of money to pay for a Bitcoin transaction fee. Why is this? Well, because what Bitcoin provides is just so valuable. And what is what is the value in your mind? I mean, the what value is that Bitcoin, uh, these transaction fees are securing your access and ability to move Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is one of the few asset classes that you have that is just uh, completely alien and unique in, in the financial world. I would I tend to agree. That's, uh, that's one of my favorite pieces of FUD to come back because, for one, like, everybody's saying that we need to add a tail emission already. Uh, a tail emission, like more supply to the end. Like, I just... I find the whole argument around, or I find the whole argument that people try to make that we should add tail emission now, pretty dumb because we haven't even, we haven't really tested the fee market out in mass yet. Other well, than, let's call it what it is. That sounds like inflation. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I didn't get into this for inflation, but I mean, going back to Greg Maxwell, he was popping champagne during the last bull run when I believe the. The uh, fee reward matched a block reward or a block subsidy um, at some point in the 2017 run-up. Um, and then do you believe in, like, Jevons' paradox and in things that provide utility on top of the protocol level, like Lightning, uh, will drive demand for fees as well? Um, or do you think it could survive purely on a protocol layer? Um, I, I think it's totally possible for Lightning to increase demand for Bitcoin fee, but... Honestly, I mean, Lightning is a service for payments, and uh, it works, and I, I am very interested in Lightning as a payment service provider, as a payment protocol. However, um, you know, I'm not in this for payments. <laughs> that's not my personal mission. You know, that's someone else's mission, I guess. What's your, what would you say your, your mission is? Oh, I'm, I'm much more interested in the store of value perspective, I suppose. And, okay. And like, like the... The difference between me being able to issue a million transactions and like a hundred million transactions doesn't particularly excite me. I can't really think of any use cases where I need that particular scale jump for me personally. Now, in terms of like other users adopting it and using it and using these payments regularly, yeah, I mean, look, that's great, uh, and it's going to happen. Um, it just—it's uh, not my battle. Yeah. Well, you've been fighting a, a strong battle most recently. You made a proposal on the Bitcoin mailing list, uh, the first written proposal of uh, concepts referred to as covenants, and your proposal is Bitcoin vaults, and this is something I, I'm fascinated by and definitely want to spend a lot of time talking about here because, it, in my mind, just reading the proposal conceptually uh, creates a far superior UX for hodlers who are worried about their coins being stolen. So the Bitcoin vaults and uh, Covenants, original Covenants proposal, or one of them, uh, was actually in 2016, and um, they called their proposal Bitcoin vaults, and it involved a proposed, um, well, at least a proposed soft fork, but they called for a hard fork to introduce a new opcode to the Bitcoin system for Covenants, where you can check whether the script of an output matches 
certain expectations that you pre-program. Unfortunately, this required that fork. And so if it requires a fork, it becomes really hard to get this introduced into the network. I was looking at that recently as part of another project I'm doing. Um, it's, this, uh, it's a broader project around cold storage. Basically, someone asked me the question, what is the best way to do cold storage? And it's this huge whole project, I guess. Um, anyway, um, so I was thinking about this, and the solution that I came up with was based on pre-signed transactions and relative time lock, where you can um, have pre-signed recovery options that can work immediately, and then uh, the attacker or the owner can only spend from a hotkey uh, if they wait for the relative time lock timeout to occur. The actual proposal that got written up in uh, the media turns out to be slightly broken, actually. And this is the benefit of, of publishing ideas so that for peer review so that other people can look at it and tell you why it's broken. Um, and in particular, the, the attack is, well, an attacker shouldn't be stupid enough to broadcast this uh, delay period transaction. And um, instead, they'll just wait for the user to broadcast that thereby bypassing the way that you notify the user that their key was stolen. So in response to that, um, this, the, the uh, setup can be partly modified um, by um, instead of having a, a, um, just a delay period and then either all the coins are stolen or they're not stolen, what you can do is you can make a tr Bitcoin transaction with one input and then 100 outputs, each with 1% of the value. And each of these output scripts have an instant recovery option where you can immediately spend a pre-signed transaction to send it back into a vault. Or they each have a relative time lock where the attacker key can spend it. But what you do is that for each output, you increase the relative time lock. So each one has an increasing time lock. And what that allows you to do is that you first have the first, uh, the first output expire or, or unlock, and you can spend it. But if the attacker spins it, you know that the key is compromised, and you run the recovery route on all the other outputs. And so you have to do it by an individual output basis in this. That, that's right. So, yeah. so what this does and allows you to do is you can limit the total amount that you fund your attacker to only like 1% or something. You can actually do less than 1%, but it increases the amount of Bitcoin fees that you pay. So it gets a bit complicated. Mm -hmm. And what... Do you see this being adopted more by institutional users, by regular I mean, I users? I, I mean, I'm still investigating this and still testing it myself, but I mean, it might be something that almost everyone might want to consider doing. Yeah, and you, and you can set it up in a way where it's like a multi-sig transaction. You have a friend across, across somewhere in the world or a family member, and you say, hey, this delay period is going off, and I didn't initiate it, and I need you to sign this multi-sig with me. To stop it. Absolutely. You can, in fact, you could have the same idea from like Lightning. You have watchtowers, these nodes that are online, always monitoring. All sorts of things are possible like that. Yeah, yeah. Take your time. 1612. Completely fleshed out. How do you see this Vault's proposal helping Bitcoin and Bitcoiners? Like what Bitcoin overall and then Bitcoiners individually? Like what is. Well. So one of the problems with Bitcoin is that if it gets stolen, that's it. You're, you're done. You, there's very little chance of being able to recover that money. Being able to minimize your losses to a certain percentage is a huge deal. And I think that that's uh, really worth looking into. Yeah. Um, and 
I, I completely agree. And one of the core aspects of this is pre-signed transaction broadcast, correct? And let's dive into this. Cause I've, I've, I was at a bit devs and Andrew Chow presented this to us, but it was a very thorough presentation. But I think uh, for the freaks out there, for my audience, I don't think uh, we've ever gone over uh, well, pre-signed transaction broadcast here. Well, pre-signed transactions are kind of interesting. Um, and in particular, when I talk about pre-signed transactions here, I'm actually talking about having a private key, signing a transaction, and then deleting the private key. And this is kind of dangerous. And what it does is it locks you into only having that single transaction is valid. If you did not sign another transaction, then that is the only transaction that will ever be valid for that key. And what's the problem there? You could have signed it with a low fee or something like that, and you could get stuck in purgatory? or um, Yeah, that, that could be the problem. Or maybe the, the blockchain state ends up in a situation where you, know, you don't want to broadcast that single transaction and you would have rather had something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another variation of this technique where you can do uh, multi-party uh, pre-signed transactions. And the way this works is that it's basically um, in of n multisig, where you require the same number of signers as the number of keys in the multisig setup. And what you do is uh, everyone promises to delete the key. And as long as there's one honest user, you can, you can uh, make sure it's locked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because ne- you would need M of M to... N of N. Oh, I the you same said M- number. I thought it was like a five of five. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting. And there's, and there's other aspects to it, too. Like you, in your proposal, you said you could make like a nuke option if you wanted to and just burn the funds. Oh, yes. So, so what... The vault proposal that I put forward does is that in the event that you know that an attacker has your key and um, he's still operating, perhaps, uh, what you do is you send the coins into a basically back into the vault over and over and over again. And the way this works is that you've pre signed a huge chain of transactions that are pushed out into the future using relative time locks. And the problem with this is that it requires you to be online for a number of years. And if your attacker's online for a number of years, you're going to be doing this for the next 50 years. (laughs) Because in the the proposal, you pre-sign up to like 150 years in the future, which isn't that many transactions. Like if you do exponential back off or something, you know, you can get away with like one transaction a year for the rest of uh, Bitcoin's expected (laughs) lifespan or something. So the problem with that, though, is that like, okay, you're, you're doing this and you're paying for these watchtowers to constantly monitor this and constantly broadcast these transactions and store all this data. And it's like 20 years into this and, and you're like, this really sucks. Well, what you can do is you could just say, you know what, I'm just going to do my nuclear abort option. I'm going to just wipe out all the coins and now not, neither of us can have it. Yeah, if it's gonna, if I'm going to spend all this time and it's eventually going to eat all these coins, like might as well just nuke it now. It's crazy. It's crazy that you can do that with Bitcoin. But well, you, pr- you probably want to do that a few years out. Maybe maybe that's not an immediate option. No. Give your, give yourself some time. But that's... Actually, you just had like something jump in my head here, like talking about within Bitcoin, within the Bitcoin network, having future events happen based off block time. How do you sort of bring that in? Like, and we were shitting on clock time earlier, and the, like, the time zones and stuff like that. Like, if you, like you're saying, you can delay this till years ahead but really it's n blocks ahead right and so i guess the question i'm trying to get at is like how good is uh equating an amount of blocks with amount of time into the future i mean honestly i think it's uh, pretty good and yeah. uh that's probably as as you commented that's probably what we should be um calibrating ourselves to is block time not uh not wall clock yeah why 
Like, and, and so how accurate that, is this? Because don't aren't block times like they're not necessarily exactly ten minutes, nine I mean, and a half up to this point. I mean, look, right? there, there's all sorts of conditions on the blockchain that might be able to manipulate the the time uh, the timestamp. But I'm I'm not particularly worried about it at the moment. Um, no. I mean, part of the problem here is that there's actually no universal time. There's no universal clock in the real world. There's no way to know what time is it. Like, there's no like time variable you have access to or something. It's just all it's all relative. Is the Bitcoin blockchain that? Is the Bitcoin I mean, blockchain that? The Bitcoin blockchain point? is as close as you're going to get to a reference clock. Um, speaking on time time stamps, though, this is a uh, a problem I get yelled at by developers for bringing up because they think it's trivial, but one that it fascinates me is the 2038 bug and mm. how that that uh, influences Bitcoin or may influence Bitcoin in the future. So can we go over that or... No, not worth it. See, I piss off not a lot of developers it. talking about this. Not Why do I piss it. you guys off? No, you're not pissing us off. It's just boring. Why is it boring? Um, you know what? So many people have already described solutions for the 2038 problem. And you know what? Probably why a lot of other people don't want to talk about it is because they probably remember rewriting a lot of code for the uh, Y2K, Y2K bug. bug. And, you know, some of that was bogus. <laughs> yeah. So it's, in the long run, it's probably a, a non-problem, right? In your mind? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Um, we're about to jump into transhumanism. I hear we've got a guest joining us at the table here. I'm Marty. <laughs> Joseph, nice to, to meet, meet you. you. Hi, thanks for um, having me join in here for a second. <laughs> well, well, Brian said you, you were going to join us, and uh, we should uh, we should talk about transhumanism when when you get here. That's one thing I don't know if you freaks know, but Brian is a transhumanism enthusiast. Is that? I'm sure uh, I'm an enthusiast, and I'll also I'm I'm somewhat active uh, uh, in developing technologies and funding different technologies. Yeah, you have like a lot that. of YouTube videos online about transhuman. What's your What's your website again? Uh, call Bri- or um, askbrian.com? What's your website? Your website? Sorry, what? Your website. Which one? <laughs> Which the one, one? The one in your um, one in your Twitter bio. Oh, hey Brian. Hey Brian. That's yeah. what it is. Hey Brian. Yeah. yeah. Go to hey Brian. Org and watch. Uh, a lot of videos on transhumanism and also get some Bitcoin knowledge. So what is transhumanism? Transhumanism is just a concept of human enhancement. The idea that you can use technology to improve human conditions in some way. And is it... So when I hear transhumanism, I hear the combination of technology and people like getting chipped and stuff like that. Is that... Is I mean, that, that, that could be one part of it. I, I personally find um, basic... Um, chip implants like either finger magnets or RFID to be somewhat boring but uh, other people seem to be very much entertained by it she's looking um, at Joe right now what do you what do you find exciting in the transhumanism realm uh, well I mean lately I've been focusing on biotech really uh, I find biotech very interesting it's basically a form of programming um, like CRISPR and, and stuff like that or oh all sorts of things yeah I mean CRISPR is just one of the newer versions of uh, genetic engineering but there's all sorts of other techniques available and what particular about the combination of like technology and humans? Like, what what would you like to do with transhumanist technologies? Is that well? I mean, I mean, one thing that I've been looking at is uh, the genetic modification of human embryos. If we have this ability to change genes or to choose particular genes, then we should do that instead of playing the genetic lottery. In my opinion. Yeah. Do you get a lot of pushback of who are you to play God 
and uh, uh, um, it's not so much who are you to play God. It's that uh, people are just scared of this and and they don't know how to think about it yet. And it's just so new that it's just like it's painful. Why shouldn't we be scared? And how should we think about it in your mind? Um, look, I mean, we use all sorts of technologies to improve the human condition. We've been doing that for tens of thousands of years, you know, hundreds of thousands of years from the very first stone tool to the modern microprocessor. Uh, we naturally use technologies to better ourselves, and that's totally okay. That's fine. And also, you don't have to. You can choose not to. You can choose not to. Well, I'm like, it scares the shit out of me. I'd be straight up. It scares the shit out of me. It's like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Are we, are we creating a, a nefarious future that we don't even know what to expect? But I also will recognize that it's probably inevitable because if it's possible, somebody's going to do it. Well, on, on that note, I mean, uh, Joseph here runs a, um, a community lab, a paid community lab uh, in biotech where people can rent out lab space to work on uh, biotech projects. Let's hear, learn more about this, Joe. Yeah, so well, I guess we should point out there's kind of a continuum of uh, this sort of biohackers. Um, we started about a decade ago. Actually, 2008 was kind of the first meetings of this group in Boston. Um, well, I met Brian originally on some other mailing lists in, in around that same time because you were on the open manufacturing list and all these other. Yeah. Actually, um, both Joseph and I were on the uh, same mailing list where Satoshi's email got sent, actually. Yeah. Boss. That's right. We were all part of this peer-to-peer foundation group, Michelle Bowens. It started in like 2005. He's a philosopher who kind of observed all of these trends in the early 2000s around peer-to-peer systems. We were all inspired by Napster, a lot of us originally. Uh, and he was, he's been a kind of focal point for different philosophies and thinkers who are, you know, looking at how we completely change capitalism to a, a new sort of economic system that can come next and supplant, you know, do better than capitalism in many ways, some of the drawbacks of capitalism. Um, and we see this happening now, of course, with the rise of all the, you know, socialism in the U.S. Yeah, well, that's a backlash. Do we really um, do we really want to supplant capitalism, or do we want to bring pure capitalism back? Because well, I would argue so that there's the law. This is a whole bunch of can of worms on the history of economics and political philosophy. I myself am an anarchist, right? And uh, there's a big tradition of sort of left anarchism and right anarchism. And you've got sort of the anarcho-capitalists that spun off of this, which many people think is a contradiction in terms because you can't really have anarcho-capitalism. It's sort of inconsistent, but. Basically, I I always point out to this for people, I try to say there's such a thing as free market anti-capitalist. So markets are not equivalent to capital and capitalism. And I arrived at this after many years. Um, so there's a bunch of, uh, this goes back to the 1800s, there was a whole school of thinkers around mutualism. Um, and there's a tradition in Europe and in the United States, we had Benjamin Tucker, the modern kind of proponent of this is named Kevin Carson. He's on some of the same mailing lists, I believe. So he's kind of written a bunch of books about this idea of free markets, but not capitalism. Um, but again, you end up at almost at the same end result. Just Isn't that what capitalism on, is, though? Free markets? Well, what there is a long school of political theory that says capitalism actually destroys markets and ends up capturing all the markets and becoming monopoly. So if you're going to continue to have free markets, you have to have distributed, decentralized production and the means of production can't be captured by any one, um, you know, big entity. 
So there's a whole kind of rabbit hole on that. But as so far I'm as the, I'm assuming you're a Bitcoiner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but I was kind of late to that party, unfortunately. Uh, but we dismissed it. Brian saw the light uh, faster than I did. But I, at the time, I was like many. You know, you think you're too smart, too clever uh, for your own good, and you're like, oh, this is. You know, this is not going to be the money of the future because it's X, Y, Z, right? And, you know, no one could think that it would catch on, obviously. So I try to, I have a lot of regret over this, obviously. I'm trying to forgive myself. Hey, you <laughs> better get some just in case I've it catches on. i made right? up for lost time as best oh, I could. You're, yeah. you're here now, you're still early. Yeah, I'm obsessed now and I'm hodling and accumulating any time I can. I'm t- constantly tithing into Bitcoin to to stack my sats and get any bit that I can. <laughs> Welcome to the front lines. <laughs> Thank you. Glad to have you here. <laughs> but yeah, so a decade ago, we started this kind of biotech movement. And uh, basically, since then, there's been dozens and dozens of, of groups in different cities and around the world who kind of start their own own labs. Some of them are just a club clubhouse model, uh, and others are more sophisticated. We actually convinced, uh, convinced the city government to give me an old, uh, unused building in uh, north of San Diego in Carlsbad. Uh, and we were able to take that over, turn it into a lab for about five years and then renewed our agreement. We had, so we had a total of seven years and now I finally am purchasing a building to move for our permanent uh, location. Hey, I can, so what are most people experimenting with? I mean, my crowd is much more like established older scientists. They're more startups rather than like biohackers. If you look at the different projects, you'll see ones that get a lot of publicity. Sometimes they're kind of stunts more so yeah, than I'm, serious research. I remember it's it a very long range of years and Bitcoin years, but between 2014 and 2016, I think I remember somebody putting like a, a hardware wallet into their, their hand and they were able to like into their hand. Oh, they can plant it a wallet. There's yeah. other biometric stuff. I mean, there seem to be a few popular things that are always coming up with this myostatin doping for some reason because people are obsessed with this idea of getting muscles without working out. Um, it, it's not really not really going to work that way, right? Exactly. Existing performance-enhancing drugs are probably better than any gene hack that you could do at this time. So just learn how to use the existing enhancement tools that are out there already before, you know, I, I don't know. I find it amusing. I actually am a bodybuilder myself, so I've done this for many years and competed. Um, but no, I mean, we are pretty much... You know, there's different aspects to this biohacking movement. I started this idea of open science was my inspiration. The idea that we would bring principles from open source software into life sciences and into the scientific field because since the 1980s, it's become really competitive. Academia is broken. Everyone's miserable pretty much at universities and it's inefficient as they basically spend all the grant money on these administrative overhead costs. And then you have a bunch of PhDs with no positions, nowhere for them to go. And they are miserable for six years, like in the lab, slaving to the, the big name professor. And then they basically, you know, you're cut loose. If you can't make that cut, you've got to go out and, you know, figure out what to do next. So, a lot of them went into yeah. And so that's been part of it as a DIY. And then the, some of these other spaces, you know, again, it's not all just hackers. There's many independent uh, inventors that need a space to go outside of, you know, a corporate big lab or a university and a place to do science. What are sort of the main breakthroughs you see coming coming through transhumanism? Well, I mean, 
it usually clusters around these big categories of life extension longevity, so radically increasing the human lifespan and reversing aging. Um, nanotechnology, which has been since the 90s, but it's always you know 30 years away. But you know the idea of post-scarcity, being able to replicate anything that you want on demand, so you can just print out whatever abundant you know material resources. Um, artificial intelligence, of course, is its own you know the whole thing of greater than human intelligence, and then what what happens at that point? Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite. Uh uh, buzz phrases I like to throw out there about like human longevity. I don't know if this is true. I think I heard it somebody somewhere, and I've just been parroting it for a couple of years now. And I think you two gentlemen will have more insight into this than I I do. But I've been saying that the first person to ever live to be 250 years old has already been born. Well, you, this is something that's been bandied about. I'm not sure if I'm convinced of that. Um, Aubrey de Grey and others use this kind of phrase, and it's very attention grabbing, but. It's unclear where the cutoff point is going to be. I would think it's more like people b- born right now that are one or something. You know, if they're, it, then they probably they may have a chance. I'm not sure anybody who's 20 years old. I'm pessimistic about this, okay, yeah. because I've I'm in I've been watching it and I'm in the industry. I tell you, it's just so slow, and people are not organized properly. But um, I don't know. But you, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> do you see it improving at all over time? Like the yeah, I mean, we're getting there. It's just frustratingly slow. Um, people that aren't, you know, from the outside looking in, you can be f- deceived with this idea of false progress. And remember, everyone has an incentive to oversell what they're doing. So there's a bunch of well-funded longevity companies recently who are hyping up all this stuff. And this one is this category of synolytics which is, refers to a type of uh, just different compounds, drugs, peptides, other agents we're going to administer to basically kill off your old cells. We have a lot of old cells in the body hanging around that we accumulate, and they then throw off this inflammasome, a dam- bunch of cascading signals of damage. So if we can do this and program them, program cell death, because they lose the mechanism to, you know, to, to get the signal that they should die, then the idea is you'll clear that out, and it kind of reboots your system to some degree. I think they're really overhyped and it's only going to get you like five years of this and then basically the old cell population builds up again. Um, so are blood boys better? Well, well, that could be one of, it's going to be a whole combination of therapies and strategies. That blood boy model is obviously not a very scalable one, which is why <laughs> they're trying to isolate those factors of which blood protein, you know, protein factors and other signaling molecules are present in the in the young blood and see if we could just produce that at scale and infuse you with it it's going to probably be hard to do i think we're going to need a bunch of other advances right like better mechanical blood pure uh, recirculating devices right because the animal experiments are over 100 years old right that did this and it really relied on stitching the old and young animal together and the old one gets damaged while the uh, i mean the old one gets rejuvenated while the the younger one gets damaged basically but it's not clear it's going to work outside of that type of uh thing and it may be a transient effect yeah Yeah. you know it's interesting actually there's actually been a lot of recent advancements in um blood conversion technologies to convert one blood type to another so what yeah how can you do that well it's science what is it? Just the iron in the blood? Is it just no, it's it's not it's not just iron in the blood. It's it's all sorts of antibodies and other and other markers that need to be 
switched over or translated to be compatible with other blood types, basically. Again, so this is, you're talking to somebody who this scares the shit out of, like, are we, like, again, it scares the shit out of me, but I also think it's inevitable. Well, you know, um, all right, so uh, keeping to the namesake of the show, um, back in 2011 and 2012, I think, um, many of us in the biohacking community were invited to the FBI um, uh, conference on uh, uh, basically biohacking and stuff like that. And uh, this was actually uh, put on by the FBI Weapons of Mass Destruction Division because they were terrified that these biohackers were like creating viruses that were going to like wipe out humanity or a certain part of humanity, like all the stupids or something. Um, <laughs> And like, yeah, I mean, it was interesting because, like, when I got there, I noticed that um, the way they seated everyone was, like, at this... It was a conference, but they had, like, planned seating, and they had, like, agent, biohacker, agent, biohacker, agent, biohacker, and your buddy got, you got there... buddied up with an agent. They, no, we really did. They said, look to your right. This is your agent. You will be reporting to him in your home city uh, for a while. What? <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, Are I mean, you still talking to your buddy? Uh, no, eventually they realized that I was harmless and I'm not actually planning to kill all the stupids. Um, Thank God. What are, you, what are you planning to do? Like, how do you want to use this? That's, I'm seriously, like, longevity, is that your mentality? You're like, I know you guys are saying, like, you cannot, you cannot yeah, my, inject muscles my, into my somebody. My main priority is life extension. That needs to be the focus in the eyes on the prize. A lot of the other enhancement technologies are kind of people are sort of frivolous sometimes in what they're trying um you know i've done bodybuilding for such a long time it's like it's a silly you should just use the existing technologies that are not uh well applied you know um, what we need for this because <laughs> when i bring this up when i bring up the uh yeah. the the hype fact of sure. first person to live to ever be 250 everybody's like oh i don't want to live to be that long i'll never be able to retire or like i'll have to work well, that, uh-huh. that's a common thing. Most people fall into these usual traps, and they all regurgitate the exact same critiques. The reality is you're not going to know how you're going to feel um, at that age. If you survey people that are 80 and they're not in really debilitating, bad, chronic pain and other degenerative conditions, they're going to say they want to be 81. And then you ask them again at 81, they're going to say they want to be 82. You don't just become decrepit. These people either lack imagination or they're already so bored with their life, you know, they can't imagine what this is not a problem except for people that don't have imagination essentially <laughs> so so i have a slightly different perspective i'm definitely interested in longevity and even immortality however i'm of the opinion that it's going to be incredibly difficult to fix aging in people who are already aged or are already aging mm-hmm. i actually believe that if we are to have any solutions to these problems it will occur before birth actually in your genome oh, thank you sir uh, I just had a beer delivered by Crypto Brecky. Thank you. <laughs> Boss. So, so that's where things get hairy. Like, should we be messing with embryos? Of course we should. The idea of playing the genetic lottery on your children is just completely abhorrent to me. Abhorrent? Yes, it is wrong. And in 100 years, we're going to look back on this and say, oh, my God, we were doing what? What about the beauty and the miracle of life that has gotten us to this point? The beauty and miracle of life is they're independent of what we are doing. Expand on that a little bit. What do you mean? I mean, you, someone isn't any less of a miracle just because, uh, you know, he happens to have an IQ of 200. <laughs> are you saying we could, we could modify embryos to make that happen? 
Well, I mean, that's certainly what a lot of people are working on. Mm -hmm. I'm actually of the opinion that IQ isn't necessarily the sole target. I mean, I'm very interested in intelligence. What does the world look like this, though? It's I, I'm very interested in intelligence, but actually the thing that I think to really go after is actually memory. Um, having better memory is so important, and that's, in my opinion, it's just such a huge factor of intelligence. Yeah, we were talking about this before we hit record. I've had six pretty bad concussions, and that's why I write. You, you know you know those are bad. You're not supposed to I know, I know, I know. seek those that's out. That's why I stopped after my last one. I said, oh, that's okay. enough. That's last enough one. playing sports. But that's why I write every oh, It's not why I write every day, but writing every day helps me with my memory, and this is actually a good segue into the topic of your transcription practices. Like This... Do you do this for memory reasons as well, or? Well, I, I originally started writing all these transcripts. I guess I should describe what this is first. Yes. I'm, I'm somewhat well-known in the community for writing transcripts very quickly. At you a, had like, our panel discussion online already before we left that place. Yeah. Um, I have a very quick publishing process as well. I, I'm just simply a very fast typist. And the way I became so fast was by arguing on the Internet, where if you want to win an argument on the Internet, you just have to type faster than anyone else. Um, so that so that uh, honed my skills, um, but originally the interest in doing all these transcripts was um, started back in high school, where I was really fed up with the school system, and I was like, if I actually recorded what these lectures are, <laughs> I think people would look at them and realize this is like complete bonkers to be forcing people to do. This is just crap, crap, crap. My idea was that okay, I'll do a transcript for every class in my high school, and uh, for every single day of the school year. And I'll, um, you know, give the booklet to, like, the principal at the school, end of the school year. Um, it turns out they don't care. But, um, but, I mean, like, I had documented evidence that this is just crap. Like, here you go. Like, you're wasting my time with this. Um, but, but then it evolved into things like, well, if I'm going to be sitting here listening to this presentation at a conference, you know, it sort of makes sense that, like, instead of having people watch a video later, wouldn't it be faster if they could just read it? I mean, that, that's what makes sense to me. It makes, I mean, and thank you for doing it because it's incredible. <laughs> like at these conferences, you're able to just go to your, your, what is it? Disfil transcript D I S P H Y D I Y H plus D Y H plus. That's where you host it. Yeah, you, you go there and you get it right away. Yeah. So I, I recently did some stats on this, and there's over 600 transcripts from the last 10 years. Um, I think a few, like a million words or something. I don't know. It's it, I had a tweet somewhere. It's just a lot of content, basically. Yeah. Um, a lot of conference I go content. to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's also. I mean, in particular, um, I also do this like um, when the Bitcoin core developers meet up and stuff like that. I mean, there's a lot of arcane knowledge that would otherwise get lost, and no one would have ever heard of these ideas, basically. And so that's that's part of why I do it is oh. to capture all these fleeting ideas. No, it's people like you and David Harding who do an incredible job of documenting stuff and articulating it to the layman so again thank you for your service and it is something i've i've watched you at riga last year that's where we should have first met i went up to introduce myself but you were typing away and i did not want to interrupt at all <laughs> that's i got to see you in action and it is it is impressive Are you gonna, you gonna hop in, Joe? Yeah, no. Well, Brian transcribed some of my conferences I hosted years ago. We had a couple of these summits about open science and the future of collaboration in in the in biotech. And Brian was there typing away. Well, to bring this back to like the beginning of the transcription, does this help with your memory? Do you? F oh, sure. I mean, it's always better to have an accurate representation. Um, I mean, I happen to have a okay memory myself, um, but you know, more is always better. I would, I would, yes. Um, 
inf- yeah. So that's like I have very vivid childhood memories, but because of my concussions, my short-term memory is not the best, which is actually funny uh, when you think about it. Like I can, I can remember vivid dreams from when I was like four or five years old, and I can't remember why I walked into a room and what I was trying to do. Like sometimes, not all the time, but uh, it is something you think. Of why the transhumanism thing is sort of appeasing to me. I'm like, damn, can I fix my brain? It's been bruised a lot. Um, is there hope for people with a lot of concussions? I mean, currently, one of the interesting things out there are certain brain implants that are meant to help with synapse. people who have memory loss. And uh, I've seen some promising things. Um, I'm very interested in seeing Elon's uh, Neuralink move forward. I think that'll be fun. Um, yeah, I have one friend that had a severe brain injury. He was almost killed. The guy, Somebody assaulted him with a crowbar. And then when he was in a coma Jesus for Christ. like three weeks, he finally came out of it. I was I was pretty impressed at how well he has functioned now because he's somehow, you know, he was in his 30s, I guess, but he still had enough neuroplasticity. But, I mean, there's different drugs that people are experimenting with now. Uh, there's a lot of forums you can look at for brain injury. where they've And some of these are the same um, nootropics and other cognitive enhancing drugs that other people are using that don't have brain injury but are just trying to enhance performance. Um, one is this nicotinic riboside, NR stuff, which is also used for anti-aging. It's a big time supplement that people push in, but use a nasal spray version of that. And there's one doctor I corresponded with like a couple years ago who treats people with Alzheimer's and, and veterans with with uh, brain injury from, from uh, Iraq and stuff. And he's using this blend of a ginseng plus this NR compound. You can get it ordered from a compounding pharmacy. And there's a couple of peptides used out of Russia, usually is where they pioneer this stuff. And people use this one. I have another friend, she's like in her 40s and has some memory loss because of some other concussion or car accident. And she's using this one called C-Max. And then she measures herself on a, some kind of computer program memory test thing and then uses this spray I mean, it's an inhalable. Usually, deliver these peptides through the nose um, because it's the best way for the uh, bioavailability. <laughs> I, th- I feel like you generally know more about this than I. So, after my last concussion in college, it's been God. It's hard to admit. It's been almost seven years, but that was my last concussion. I took a biology of the brain class to sort of learn what was going on. And I don't know if I had a quack teacher, but he said cannabinoids, cannabis can can help too because like if your brain's bruised and your synapses aren't firing cannabinoids serve to make your cells work better is that true yeah i mean that would make sense the cannabinoids are a gigantic bunch of receptors we have all these different things in the in our our system the opioids obviously this opioid epidemic that class of compounds was targeted against this set of receptors and the cannabinoids are distributed in all sorts of tissue types right so you've got all your bros in the cannabis field pimping it for everything. You can have a cream for XYZ, any condition, right? Then you also have serious pharmaceutical companies developing a, a version of it for seizures, for example. That's one of the first ones that's being approved for childhood. Charlotte's Web, right? For kids yeah. that have seizures, yeah. So, I mean, it's just it's hard because these things have so many effects it's hard to pinpoint it and you can use so many different compounds but you're basically just trying to influence inflammation in some way well that's a great segue into a pushback here there's so many effects like 
sure. with what we're doing with experimenting with genome and embryos, like if you had to give a devil's advocate for what the worst effects could be, what do you think it would be? I mean, look, oh, I just what, got what I usually say is, I mean, every, <laughs> everything is a, like there's no really philosophically good way to define a side effect or an off-target effect from a on-target because, bringing, yeah. you know, so one person's side effect might be the other person's desired result. Um, you're going to have certain limiting things, and ultimately the embryo is not going to be viable, probably. If it's too weird of an edit, it won't implant and it won't go to term. There is a chance that, yes, we could create a new rare disease. There's already about seven to 8,000 rare diseases on the planet, and, and they may have 12 kids that have it to about 2,000. So the population is between like a few, a dozen up to a couple thousand people on the planet that have been identified and, and they, and they're discovering new, uh, these ones all the time because we can sequence people now for the first time cheaply. So this is a problem for the industry because we have not had an economic model that can develop drugs and cures for rare diseases because our model is usually a blockbuster drug and you want to make it, you know, sell it to a few billion people. And when it comes to developing it for a, like 100,000 person or less population, now they provide these incentives for orphan drugs, but it usually ends up being a million dollars a drug for each patient, which is a broken business model. For, su- for sufficiently desperate, very ill people, it becomes very appealing, the idea of biohacking and just do it yourself. Right. Because if these, if these drugs cost a million dollars, do you have any idea how much lab space a million dollars can buy you? Like The economics don't really add up here. Well, the other thing they usually will do is you go and look at existing old drugs, generic, generic drugs and things that have been out there for 30 years, and most of the time you can repurpose them and reposition it, it's called, and use one of them that was approved decades ago for some other thing, and it turns out it has some efficacy, some action against your target, your gene target. And that can actually be done cheaply if the red tape is cut, but unfortunately the insurance companies and FDA, all of them act like you've got to go back and run a multi-million dollar study for a 30-year-old drug that's already safely used in this disease over here for like gastric reflux or something, for example, right? But if you're going to call it this for your, and it's crazy because then a company will go and they'll actually sponsor that trial and then they'll earn the right to sell the exact same drug, but just do a label on it for the orphan disease and charge $50,000 for this drug that costs like five dollars basically to make and has already been sold as like you know an acid or something over here like at the pharmacy but that's all the game the system gets rigged unfortunately monopolies, right what you're talking yeah about. The, the the pharma industry is completely captured the regulatory apparatus and the insurance company it's mostly in the united states other countries actually negotiate with them and have the usually the government's negotiating pricing in some way so as we're fighting for free competitive money you're also fighting for free competitive healthcare. Well, exactly. Well, this is one thing I've been trying to advocate, actually, it's sort of like a Silk Road for medicines. So it's like we build this next Silk Road 2.0 for essential drugs. We're having this problem in insulin in this country. Insulin has been around more than 90 years, and they keep raising, raising the, prices the prices for the last yeah. 10 years. You can actually go was it and Martin Shirkelly to do. Well, he do was this? he was doing it for some other drugs. He wasn't mm-hmm. an insulin, but he's one of like dozens of these pirate like well these PE these firms. friggin' monopolist pricks who do this. So what I'm saying is we could basically you can go and, and and people do it now where they order their own drugs from India. We can import it for your own personal use. I've been trying to see if, how we could organize buyers clubs to do that. The problem is then you become a target for enforcement action 
ultimately the DEA, DEA could get you if you're distributing medicines. Though you're trying to basically form a co-op or a collective that's obtaining it for their own use. But there's ways to do this, and I ultimately, you know, it comes down to I have a whole like long-term plan for like a, creating generics drug company that we would, we, you know, the patients could fund, finance, and obtain their own factories to essentially produce the supply they need and become their own pharmacy. That would be beautiful. So, so this is really one of the trends that's behind uh, medical tourism. This idea that if you want good healthcare at a low price, go overseas, go to just Germany. go somewhere else. Kobe, go to Germany. Yeah. Like, so uh, this med- is actually medical tourism is going to be huge. Brian, this is fascinating because I feel like there's a lot of parallels here between the Bitcoin community and this transhumanism. Like, yeah, exactly. So one of my next missions is has been to go out and start talking to all the Bitcoiners about this biotech a- a- anti-aging. Again, because you get a long time preference, a long time horizon. Suddenly, well, when you realize you can be alive two years. Well, that's years. what I was going to say earlier. Right. Like, is the world that you envision via transhumanism only enabled via a currency like Bitcoin that allows you to make long term investments? Yeah, that is what investments has like started to click for me. And I become obsessed with this. In the beginning, I didn't understand the significance of Bitcoin. And then I realized. Or we're going to need this as our like base layer for a different kind of civilization can propel us to a type one Kardashev scale energy civilization. because We'll actually have basically a price always for this renewable energy that otherwise wasn't going to be competitive with fossil fuels. And then if you've got people that have a bunch of Bitcoin and they're going to want to be around 500 years now, they have a motive to do all of this stuff to ensure that future. But we've got to get the word out and we're going to have to bring them over to because I'll tell you that our transhumanist community is kind of dysfunctional and not very mature and not very built out. It needs a lot of, uh, you know, better engineering talent and people that aren't. I mean, this is a whole other thing, but you basically have a division of labor between like evangelists and people that come early that are good at like prophesizing stuff and people that can actually get shit done. And we lack that in most of the anti-aging, cryonics, all of these fields. One of the interesting parallels between Bitcoin and transhumanism is actually uh, one of the original philosophies of transhumanism was called extropy. Uh, extro- uh, yeah, extropy. The opposite and, um, of entropy? In particular, uh, that actually started from a group of libertarians. Uh, so, yes, there is a lot of overlap, um, although I was totally unfamiliar with that until Bitcoin. Um, and in particular, one of the prominent members there was Hal Finney. Well, yeah, Hal had very, very... Who, who who some might suspect might have been Satoshi. I, I think... I'm, I don't like to... I don't like to throw my Satoshi... T- but if I'm going to put money behind anybody, it's Hal was a part of it. Well, I mean, some part. I mean, at one level, one, one other level of speculation here is, um, as, as you might know, Hal is currently stored at Alcor. Yeah, he's cryo. And, that's right. And uh, some people speculate that perhaps he has the passphrase memorized for Satoshi's coins, and this is the ultimate bug bounty to go develop this technology <laughs> to be able to resuscitate brain matter to, to read memory, you know? That would be crazy. The other now that's ju- now that's just speculation. Keep in no, mind. it's speculation. I've also heard speculation that Satoshi's coins are a huge quantum computer alarm system because they're in pay to pub. Have you been hanging out with, with Vitalik? No, no, I have not. John Newberry actually told me this. I hung out with John Newberry. He told me this because it's like pay to pub key. It's not pay to pub key hash. So they are more susceptible to a quantum attack right. than most addresses. So if Satoshi's coins move. You'll know it's likely a quantum computer or Craig Wright just got bored and wanted to move some coins. Right. 
kidding, obviously, there. But sticking on the parallels between the Bitcoin and the transhumanism, with you in particular, Brian, like, I feel like you got to have, like, a lot of, like, you're pulling a lot of information from one vertical and bring it to the other. Like, it feels like there's a lot of, again, parallels here Well, so the, that the make you more well-rounded than m- many people might So, So recognize. the interesting thing here is, like, um, okay, so so one perspective is some people know me for, like, writing transcripts very quickly. I'm a very fast typist, but I actually have other skills. Uh, turns out I'm a really good programmer. Uh, that's actually what my whole career has been. It's been software development. Um, I'm quite good at it. Ask my agent. Um, Boss. And um, then on the other hand, there's all this biotech stuff. And, you know, at one level, I mean, biology is a technology and DNA is a form of programming. Now, biologists will cringe when they hear that because they'll, they'll say, well, I mean, you can't program it as precisely as you can program a computer, but it is still a form of programming. It just, it just happens to suck, but I mean, it's there. And it's a form of molecular nanotechnology, which all the transhumanists were wanting back in the 80s. This is a real form of molecular nanotechnology that is available right now. So, again, let's, I, I'm just hearing people scream right now, like, you can never fight Mother Nature. But It's not even, about fighting Mother Nature at all. But isn't even the editing of genes, we are part of nature, like, if we come to this conclusion logically by ourselves, is that nature? Well, again, this always comes up for some reason. People have a very uh, a cognitive trap on this. Look, there is no, it's just nature. That's all there is. There's no artificial or non-natural. You can't have anything that exists be non-natural. If it exists under the laws of nature in this universe that we're inhabiting, it is part of nature, whether it's arsenic, HIV, Ebola, virus, all of that is, quote, natural. Now, you can have things that are organic or inorganic or you could have things that are random or they have some purpose behind it so they're designed or you can have this term of synthetic which implies it has been designed or made into an artifact in some way so this is the whole pipe of synthetic biology says that we do not have to just accept bio- biology how it is we're going to be able to start um, engineering it and refactoring it so that you have modularized gene circuits or whatever if you will they took inspiration from semiconductors and the microelectronics industry and and it said in just the way that you have these transistors and capacitors resistors that were standardized parts we're going to configure biological systems to behave in that way and that's a very big engineering challenge we're only like a few decades in to this since the early 2000s right um, and then that's where you start to build different natural systems or you refactor existing pathways to try to do something economically useful in a way that's better for the environment than our petroleum-based industry, for example. Are we going to end up like the characters in Prometheus? Like, is that we're just going to be like huge the Jack Ball guys? from Prometheus? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a bunch of science fiction. And do we obviously. send this? Do we send this out to the galaxies? Or well, there are the, some theories that say we already are some Pam sperma or something yeah, that landed the, on Earth, and that's where we came from. Yeah, what is it? The um, the Tanuki or whatever. The well, there's all these di- yeah stuff of how life originated. But I think basically to get to Mars or do anything, you're going to have to have very good synthetic biology because we can't uplift a bunch of mass and matter and stuff up there to do it. So the idea is you would send the instructions to Mars and then you you know with the bioprinters the DNA synthesizers you can then start to extrude the raw input materials you need to bootstrap your 
base there. All right, Mike, back to Brian. This <laughs> is a parallel with sending like radio waves of Bitcoin transactions to space too. Like you could uh, hypothetically send Bitcoin via radio waves, similar to what you just described, to space. Correct. And and we're already doing that. I mean, there's yeah, already the satellite. The, uh, the the satellite. Yeah. What do you think of the satellite's first uh, uh, killer app in the in the sat node? Um, I, I I don't know what. I mean, so you're asking, what is what will the first killer app be of uh, satellites? Oh, right? I think we found it already. It's anonymous messages um, sent via lightning. Uh, maybe. I mean, um, there's other possible use cases though, that I've been quite interested in. Um, like, first of all, in one sense, a satellite is actually kind of an ultimate form of cold storage. And Why do you say that? Well, it's extremely hard to access. And the point of cold storage is to be extremely hard to access. So you're saying we could hide private keys in the satellite? I mean, in some you, way? You, you could, but I mean, if it was a business, then the problem is you have to trust the business to not have a copy of the secret on, on the, on the planet. So as the individual, how would you do this? Well, you'd you'd have to have your own satellite, and okay. and there are ways to do that. There's CubeSat and a few other options, but yeah. Didn't uh, I think that the. Uh consensus or something bought up that uh, asteroid mining company uh, like uh, the ethereum consensus yeah the consensus guys bought up this this one called planetary resources that james cameron or a bunch of these people were involved in but it kind of all went bankrupt how can you buy asteroids that you well, have no, no that, access that to company yet. was totally premature as usual and they came up with this speculative business plan that's like 30 years or more too soon so as soon as they went defunct i think the consensus people bought them because they had some satellites or micro satellite or something. Uh, so I'm just remembering this from 2018. But Brian, I, I don't think I've ever seen you speak publicly about this or, or mention it. But what are your thoughts on Ethereum and that whole project? I, I'm trying to stay away. Um, you know, I, I was asked once by a company I worked for to integrate Ethereum. And um, without revealing too much, um, my biggest problem was getting a node to stay synchronized and not crash. And being able to do all the business integration I needed me? to do. Because I wrote about this yesterday, and I got a lot of pushback from the Ethereum community. Because I said, Eric Wall, from he used to write for Bitcoin.com. Luckily, he doesn't anymore. He, writes for the, he has written stuff for the Human Rights Foundation. But he's going through the process of downloading a fully validating, full state uh, uh, storing node from scratch for Ethereum. I think he's on day seven right now. And he's probably like two or three weeks out. The Ethereum fanboys will push back and be like, oh, you should download a fast sync version. Like, that's just as good as a full node. And my question is, and I don't, I'm not technical enough to answer this, and I've never gotten a straight answer out of, like, an Ethereum developer. If all the nodes storing the full state and state changes fall off the network, like, don't those fast sync uh, implementations have nothing to reference? Am I wrong in saying that? Uh, look, I mean... A lot of these blockchains, uh, these competitor blockchains, have all sorts of weird ideas for how they're going to um, maintain the blockchain and get state. I mean, honestly, a lot of them have said that the solution is going to be just phone a friend to get the information you need. And um, honestly, I'm okay with that as long as those projects are honest about that. And um, it just happens to not be what Bitcoin needs. Yeah. Interesting note, uh, Vitalik is a disciple of Eliezer Yudkowsky, who is a prominent transhumanist. So, uh, interesting connection there. The transhumanist you guys agree with, or? 
Elliot. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of factions in the transhumanist movement. I can't even imagine. Okay, and then there's some that are AI-obsessed, and they're all about the singularity, so that's a whole offshoot of singularitarianism. Then you've got others that are more focused on biotech hacking. I'm kind of on this end because I think we're, we're biological life forms, so you got to in some way bet on carbon-based life form rather than digitized, you know, the machines, everything, and, and we don't know how it's going to coexist. carbon. Right, yeah, because we're carbon, I think we have to prioritize our source code and figure out how to master that, and then I don't know what's going to happen. The machines may be hostile to us, or we'll merge with them with some sort of combination thing, or you'll have biology finds a way, so some other form of our genes may go somewhere else and mutate into another organism or something, you know? Pulling out so, your inner Jeff Goldblum there. Yeah, no, I mean, Jeffy G, yeah. I mean, uh, genetics is the most powerful force on the planet. That's quote straight from Jurassic Park. Right. It's completely true. Um, so I, I agree with Joseph here. I mean, that's that's my perspective as well. Eliezer, on the other hand, is more of the, oh, my God, AI is going to kill us all. We need to do something about this. I find, do, you, do you agree that most He's, AI right now is just... <laughs> He's not Maybe even the eloquent if and functions, <laughs> if anything. Remember this for the Roco's basilisk thing? This is the most, most ridiculous uh, meme or thing of Facebook. I don't know. It was on Facebook or something one time, right? There's this one particular AI researcher guy that's part of that same group who got completely ec- uh, a- angry at everyone because of this scenario. It was proposed where you would have to work for the fu- uh, future AI will come back in time and torture your past self if you don't do everything there is to bring it about, bring about its existence. And this became known as this basilisk. I guess it's a Harry Potter reference. There's a whole lot of Harry Potter nerd fanaticism in this subculture as well. Yes, Eliezer <laughs> wrote an entire bunch of books of fan fiction on, on Harry Potter that explains the principles of Bayesian reasoning and rationality. So this is like for kids, I guess. For ch- children's book, yeah. yeah. So that's one of my criticisms of him. I mean, look, I mean, those books were good for fan fiction. Uh, however, I mean, if you're really trying to bring about the development of, of artificial intelligence technologies, maybe writing Harry Potter fan fiction isn't the right thing to be doing. Do you? It's almost like the shades of gray for you know. <laughs> would you? For for transhumanist AI nerds or something. It's Fifty like, shades it's of basically gray. Basically, porn for rationality <laughs> fetish freaks. Yeah. But, so would you would you agree with me that like AI is nothing but like somewhat sophisticated if-and functions and it's not really as fleshed I mean, out as people think it is? I, there's actually two different versions of AI. There's there's artificial General. intelligence, which which is uh, the stuff that drives your car or answers your emails and plays Go, I guess. I don't know. And then there's artificial general intelligence, which is more like on the level of either a, uh, a dog or a human, uh, where it is generally capable of figuring things out in a way that computers currently aren't able to do. Um, I think the big problem is that we don't know how to do that, and that's why I fall on the other side towards biology, because we do have humans that are somewhat uh, intelligent, or they have brains that seem to be doing something interesting. I'm not really sure how or why. Um, and, and that's what we should be working from, in my opinion. I agree. Because if I had to pick a dog in the fight of biology versus AI, I definitely would pick biology. Because, again, Homer here, I like humans, I like being a carbon-based being, I like having individual thoughts, if they are individual, who knows, um, but that's, again, like, one thing that scares me, like, am I a bad person if I get my wife pregnant naturally, 
Like that's what you're going like. Well, the answer is once the, in the future. technology is at a certain standard. Yes, it's not moral for you to do unaugmented reproduction because it's not a very good. It's I mean it, you're giving them a bunch of bad traits. We all have bad genes for heart disease. We're all vulnerable to these things. Eczema. If I right. Get rid of we're, eczema, we're going I would. to. Like it becomes as technology, it's just like it was not responsible to not have a child vaccinated once we have childhood immunizations. And that technology now means that it's immoral and irresponsible not to give your kid the mumps, measles uh, shot because we have it. And if you're a technophobe, you're one of these anti-vaxxers, same thing is going to apply to these enhancement uh, embryo editing technologies. It will become immoral not to give the cardio protective heart you know upgrade gee not the the alzheimer's protection dementia package to protect your future you know offspring against cognitive decline and that will be a sliding scale that evolves you know over time and then you'll have other things that are not necessarily therapeutically protected but might be just a matter of taste and preference so so taste and preference yeah i am so it's important to, to note that we are both staunch adv advocates of personal choice here. It's mm -hmm. up to the parents. Um, and this is actually a clear distinction from what people uh, usually call this eugenics. Uh, but the difference is that eugenics is usually uh, government uh, mandated. It's where government intervenes in human reproductive choices and makes decisions for you. Yeah, eugenics that is, is all about like pouring acid on people's body parts and shit like that, too. I right? mean, that, that's not what we're advocating for yeah. here. Uh, the idea is that this is a choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, and the reality is everyone is reproducing constantly willy-nilly, and most of them probably shouldn't be. So it's like, how are you going to start now imposing some standards on this? It's ridiculous. You either got to be in the business of sort of legislating who can and can't reproduce, and you know, look at what a nightmare our politics is now over stuff with immigration. Or you've got to be hands off and let people make decisions to whom they already want to have sex with. That's how people choose now. Mate selection is already a form of eugenics. It always has been how people pick traits based on, you know, and we have the competition between men and women, basically, because you have different evolutionary strategies and you've got people trying to fake their signals. That's just a good parallel to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the only thing that's actually honest proof of work. You have some of that in nature because you've got costly signals. Testosterone, high testosterone actually is a disadvantage because your immune system is weakened and only really? the more robust specimens, the alpha males can actually like sustain that. Extra muscle mass, all these things are a big burden. It's proof of work. Right. So we do have this in nature now with fitness signaling. Right now we have Instagram and a bunch of technologies that let people subvert these honest signals. So you can now use makeup, cosmetics and other technologies to fake your genes. So you're actually a beta, but you're making, you know, putting on things to deceive them. Women are very good at this with the mate trap. Um, and of course, with men, it's different because women are looking more at status and stuff. Right. But um, so I see a great, you know, Bitcoin is the only kind of thing that's still an objective. Uh, the only objective truth in the universe. Truth is right safe now, say, exactly. Right? But the point is, I think it's going to sort itself out. We want to be able to democratize this technology so it's not just rich people that have access to enhancing their children. And when we can do this, it's just like fashion. It's like different clothing choices. Everyone can choose different types of styles of dress. Well, right? that's what's so scary to people, right? It's like... What is, like, how do you design a perfect baby? And what you know, is... 
I mean, no, it's going to be, there's not going to be, it's a moving target, right? You're going to want to, some things are going to be uncontroversial that you're going to agree on uh, certain types of disease vulnerability. The other problem, though, is that most diseases are not, um, we don't all have the same cause of heart disease. Your heart disease is not my heart disease. It turns out these population studies have disproved the common variance thesis which thought that most of our chronic diseases are all from the same, it's actually, it's a bunch of different long tail distributions that ends up that your heart disease is one set of genes, this other guy's you know, population is a different set of underlying genes. How much did Theranos set you guys back? Well, Theranos is like one of several of these high profile fraudulent things. I've mm-hmm. been watching it for years. I knew it was BS from the very beginning. I feel like this, this has to piss you guys off. It pisses me off primarily because they raised all this money. I tried to raise a little bit of money years ago for a DNA testing thing. Couldn't raise any money. <laughs> These guys got hundreds of millions of dollars and then Billions implode of dollars, after right? 15, year, you know, 15 years of fraud. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's one of the things here is uh, in this area of venture capitalists, they don't do due diligence. It just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. yeah, The biggest thing, I can't understand Tim Draper, how he still like defends this except that his daughter was friends with elizabeth holmes wasn't he one of the first ones out and he was he was invested in it and it's like he has a complete cognitive sunk cost fallacy or something in that but it's like i don't get that people are really weird and there's like selectively insane about stuff no i agree Um, but yeah i mean I, i i can't stand it because there's so little money to go around in the biotech world and then you get these bad actors that soak up the funds and then have this chilling effect. But that's what I'm afraid is going to happen in the aging thing because there's several related, there's a few startups like that that are kind of trying to be unicorns for anti-aging, and I think they're super overhyped and it's not going to have dramatic success Let's in name humans. names so we can... Well, the one that I, well, I'm going to piss some people off, I guess, I'm probably not really listening to this, Unity is the one, Unity Therapeutics. Uh, Jeff Bezos is one of the investors. They, they always trot that out because he's the huge name, right? I mean, he did like an early angel round or something in that. But um, I, I think their synolytic thing is they don't even have it in the clinic yet. They've got like a lead candidate and they have this crazy valuation. I hate to see that kind of stuff because that's really that's the, what's wrong with our biomedical uh, system. It rewards these companies that don't even have a treatment in the clinic yet, and they get these high speculative valuations. That's why we have to change the process to open up the data earlier and have more of a, like, I'd say, like a prediction market type system. Mostly these companies get to IPO stage and they still haven't even had success with their therapeutic drug. And then it just gets unloaded to the public market, it fails, and then they've all cashed out or gone on to the next thing. There's no discipline and there's no learning. I mean, David Sinclair is another one. He's a huge name in anti-aging. He's at Harvard for like 20 years. He sold one drug that was based on this resveratrol molecule. Resveratrol was all the hype in the late 90s and 2000s. The red wine molecule responsible for the French effect of why the French people can eat all this crappy high-fat cheese stuff and still live a long time. Well, it turned out the whole thing failed after he sold it for $700 million to Glasgow SmithKline. They abandoned it. No consequences for him. He's on to the next thing, this NAD compound, and he's still raising tons of venture money. But it's like, you look at it, none of his stuff ever, like, had great success in the marketplace for patients. And I don't know why, I mean, George Church is not quite as bad, but he's a similar phenomenon where it's like he's attached to every single company in the genomic space. Like, there's no real commercial metric of success there's not a marketplace success for these things whether they fail or not so you get these 
lacking. I mean, I think church is kind of just like a technology factory, right? But what we're lacking is like a real feedback mechanism. There's no discipline because there's never any marketplace right effects. So, so for those in this community who don't know George Church, the best way that I would describe him is he's the Greg Maxwell of synthetic biology. <laughs> the biggest hard ass in the world? Well, no, I just mean he's the uh, graybeard, the he resident graybeard. I mean, the graybeard slash hard ass that knows it all. Super prolific. But what I'd say is like this, the, the pipeline, it's all dysfunctional because we don't have a good mechanism for spotting winners and losers. They get into it like you know, 15 years down the line and it all turned out to be built on foundations of sand and then you're back at starting over. And that's how the pharma industry is for the last 40 years. Well, you're talking to somebody from Philadelphia, the mecca of the pharma industry. Uh, In many people's eyes, you got Glasgow Smith Klein, a bunch of other medical companies within the city and somebody, a trend I've been following just because economics and the economic state of our country in particular will lead you towards these externality trends one of which being like the opioid addiction like i think people are turning to opioids one because they're very cheap they're very accessible via the 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 current pharmaceutical industry and then two there's uh a lack of mission out there there's lack of mission driven people out there so they turn to these opioids pretty easily and the pharmaceutical companies are there to basically provide them with these and i think just and for you freaks out there, this is my first intro to transhumanism, like hardcore conversation ever, and I'm loving it so far. And I think, and just like being exposed to these uh, arguments for the first time, I, I have to imagine that the biggest hurdle for you guys is getting people to break away from traditional pharma companies. And so, so part of the problem with transhumanism is that you're basically asking people to do a lot of hard work, yeah. which is kind of the same with Bitcoin. You're asking people to do a lot of hard work. I mean, stream ownership, work. right? Yeah, I mean that that's what it comes with. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll, on that, I'll point out, only Bitcoin has this thing built in where you use greed to harness people to learn to do that work, and then you get economically rewarded. The reason why we're failing in transhumanism and anti-aging stuff, there is no mechanism that rewards you for that, which is why I don't see a good path forward for us. I'm not sure how to hack the incentive problem. Bitcoin somehow ingeniously did this mechanism where it's built in to the protocol. If you do the work now, it goes up in value and you're holding it and you're rewarded for being a hodler. Well, I mean, I mean, that goes back to the idea that with Bitcoin and sound money, you this can possibly possible. have a long time frame and investment preference. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Well, this is maybe problem, Bitcoin is right. a pre to the future that it's you It's one envision. way to do it. But the problem that comes back is like, how many people do we need to be on board supporting this idea of anti-aging research if we're going to, you know, at what point do I have to persuade 10 people to go along with this research program or I'm going to die of old age if they don't agree? And it's a question of, you know, how do we motivate people, harness people, the tax payers that said like the war on cancer was a bad failure because we started that in the 1970s a lot of the tools were not here we didn't have a big data all this infrastructure to actually successfully carry out a war on cancer from the 1970s when that was funded right and still today we're making some good progress at the immunotherapy and some new approaches but um, you know, I can see us for 30 years being like having this problem against anti-aging and not making meaningful progress for life extension because we're simply not properly organized and the infrastructure was not mature. You have to have these background pieces there. People tried digital currencies in the 80s and 90s. All of that was not ready until this one event, you know, 2008. And then suddenly, finally, that iteration of it 
pulled all the pieces together and somehow managed to last 10 years, right? So can't take this for granted. Like anti-aging may be the same thing where it's like 2050 before all the pieces kind of had congealed and suddenly it's now you can roll this out and it's going to be deployed successfully. Switch to Brian here. I wonder if you could use like and lock time verify to incentivize this, right? Oh, there's all sorts of uh, funding contracts that have been proposed, like mutual assurance contracts, yeah. and uh, uh, all sort. Uh, I'm sure like Robin Hanson probably has a few things up his sleeve, all sorts of stuff um, for mechanism design. Um, I don't know. I, I still think um, that if there is a a smart contract solution for funding really advanced technologies that we don't currently know how to fund, I mean, I mean. They, they might be out there, but uh, I mean, they haven't been invented yet. And in the meantime, I think that just the the shifting of time preference with Bitcoin savings uh, might be a strong enough effect. Yeah, I mean, that's one huge thing is the time preference shift. That's probably taking another 10 years before there's critical mass of people who've all bought into this. But the early adopters are going to need to come together and somehow create a fund or a structure, something with incentives where we can really, it's all about open source technology development. This is something I've wrestled with for 15 years, how I originally connected to Brian. And you know, the patents and all of the secrecy and intellectual property is basically the single biggest damaging factor to humanity's success because it's holding us back from innovating at an exponential rate. Only in a few cases of Linux and a few other massive breakthrough success areas did we create these open platforms commons for technology development and Bitcoin itself being an open source code. So how do we do that for the hard sciences and areas where they've been accustomed to these crazy, um, you know, models where you build a giant wall around your intellectual property and it's super capital intensive and only Intel or whoever can be a chip maker and you only have a couple of those in the world. Now, in that case, there still was competition between these chip fabs, so it's actually been good for the consumer and mostly made chip prices be enough of a commodity to where we haven't been subject to a total monopoly like we are in the pharma industry. But so we've got to come together and come up with a new way to finance these big open source technologies in biotech, nanotech, the, the big key enablers. So interesting observation here. Um, Many software developers or even just uh, movie enthusiasts, torrenting enthusiasts, might remember that uh, video codecs for a long time were patent encumbered uh, and they still continue to be. And we have to expend a lot of effort to work around them. Patent encumbered? In, in particular, uh, through the MPEG Alliance. Okay. Um, an interesting note is that the MPEG Alliance is now doing similar patent pools for CRISPR. And really? uh, since it didn't work out for us last time, maybe we shouldn't do it this time. I don't know. So how do we how do we prevent it from happening again? In your in your opinion, I mean it's it's really hard. I think you just got to build a. Do you war need a Satoshi like yeah. figure to create? You need something like that. I don't know what the equivalent is. I've been dealing with this for like 15 years about what is open source biology. What's the equivalent to Linux in genomic data and genomic technologies? A few people have tried to release quote, open source licenses or open source equivalents of biological parts and repositories, it hasn't like caught on in the same way because it's so hard to do all the cultivation, the documentation, and to be a steward of these systems. We have all these biobanks around the world that take patient samples and tissues and, and cell lines, and most of them are owned by different like nonprofits or different groups that license out and do materials transfer agreements. And so they all have different competing business models 
Um, and even in, when they're like nonprofit, a lot of times it becomes like captured where they have the biggest data set and the biggest bunch of tissues from all the um, patients. And then they're going to charge you on your term, their terms for being able to get access to those samples. Yeah, uh, speaking of monopolies like that, um, another big one that people aren't entirely aware of is the library monopoly. <laughs> OCLC, library? yeah, all the libraries are part of a monopoly. Uh, the whole interlibrary loan system is completely corrupt and controlled There's by this an organization. Interlibrary loan system? Yeah, like who what are they get? loaning? <laughs> what are they loaning? Uh, books. Oh, yeah. I mean, like you go to a, a library, they don't have the book, and they get a loan for a book from another library. That's all managed through a single system. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, libraries aren't as entirely free as we'd like to think. Even the Dewey Decimal System is, like, pot patented, and libraries pay fees for the Dewey Decimal System. It's just completely ridiculous that our entire intellectual capacity of our civilization is just so corrupted. It's just completely ridiculous. Does Bitcoin give you hope that we'll break out of that structure? Um, you know what? I, I am opting out of our current system and using Bitcoin. That's, that's how I think of it. Brian, I'm going to put you in a tough position right now. If you had to choose to work on Bitcoin or transhumanism in perpetuity going forward, what would it be? Oh, don't do that to me. <laughs> I just did it to you. Oh, man. You have to choose. Why do you have to Joseph do me like that? Um, gosh. Um, you know, honestly, I would probably pick transhumanism um, because I see it as a superset, really. Um, I'm not, like, fundamentally, like, just committing your entire life to money is sort of weird to me. Like, like, I remember this event I went to uh, I once, and it was a bunch of, um, I guess it was libertarian event or something. I'm, and I, I wasn't previously exposed to this community, and it was this, like, economic forum or something. And I started to look around at everyone in that room, and I realized that the only common denominator was that we all liked money. And I was like, this is not a group that I want to be a part of. Well, that's, that's actually what entices me about Bitcoin a lot, because Bitcoin, I feel like if we get it to a point where it's ossified, it's sort of like a common mission... You come together for a couple decades to make sure it can work and get off the ground, and then, boom, you create a new money. And yes, a lot of people want to get wealthy from it, but I, I, I agree with you. I never want like I consciously try to tell myself like, don't get enamored with the concept of money for money's sake. And no, I mean, I mean, look, like money is very important. Yes. Greed is not bad. Self-interest is very important. To the extent that you have self-interest, you should also have self-interest in things beyond money, right? No, no, but I think, but I think there is, there is a, a special nuance to our particular current condition, where money is so broken that we need to fix it, and like we're the generation tasked with like, all right, we're the assholes that have to fix money, and then hopefully our future children and their children don't have to worry about this. They can worry about extending their lives and stuff like that. I I I really hope that we can get to work much faster than that. <laughs> I do as well. Well, I think we're all on our way there. Like, we're a decade in. Bitcoin works. So I talked to Matt Corallo about a year and a half ago, and I gave him, I asked him to put a percentage that Bitcoin would succeed in its endeavor to become a sovereign currency, digital currency. Uh, he put it at 5% in November of 2017. So it was almost two years ago now. Um, what would you put it at right well, now? I guess I don't really understand the question. I mean, Bitcoin already works, as you just mentioned. Either it does or it doesn't. Do you, do you think it... All right. Probability that Bitcoin works and is not... Uh, is not cajoled by the state a decade from now. How about, how about this? How about 
how about what is the likelihood that the network effect ends and starts to even reduce or something? You're better at asking questions than I am. And, so and I, I would say that it's quite unlikely that the network effect is going to just fizzle out and even be inverted or anything like that. I, I really doubt that. That's what I like to hear. Is there, I mean, we're an hour and a half in here. This is now a transhumanism podcast. <laughs> Tales from the Crypt. How to bring, bring people back from the crypt. <laughs> um, we've got a dinner to get to in 40 minutes. It's going to take a while to get there. Do we have any parting notes, gentlemen? Like anything you want to touch on before we end? Like the, the combination of Bitcoin and transhumanism is very fascinating so, to me. So I'm planning an event that I'm trying to start to get the word out and see if I can get enough high influencers, everybody on board with this concept that we will do this Bitcoin party at these different price levels. So I was going to say 50,000 would be the first one, but it could be 100. It's hard to know because it might go 50K and then shoot to 100 like really fast. But we'd have the first one of these parties and then do it every five or 10 years at different price levels. Like the first one, then the next one would be half a million and then at 1 million. And each one would have a theme of these long-term civilizational challenges. So the first event, we'd have it on longevity and, all, and kind of introducing the Bitcoiners to radical life extension and try to get everybody, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm going to invite the leading groups from the anti-aging community and then the Bitcoiners together. Maybe the next second party at 500,000 would be about space and private space flight and how to, you know, mobilize Bitcoin around getting us off planet to Mars. So that is the tentative plan. I'm going to put this thing together in some sort of countdown clock. I'm saying maybe it's like May 2020, somewhere in that. I'm planning to rent uh, Catalina Island, the ballroom up in Catalina Island, and have like a theme of the, you know, the Gilded Age, the new whatever thing. And, you know, have all the big you know, names in the space come out to sort of learn about life extension and, you know, human longevity. It's good timing. It's right, uh, right around the next halving. So. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just going to be kind of like a notice as soon as it hits 50K. We're going to announce the party within, you know, this a couple of weeks. I'll have the venue kind of ready, reserved on status. And then, you know, everyone converge from around the world to, you know, <laughs> come to this Bitcoin celebration. Well, I will be there if invited. Yeah. Brian, thank you for for introducing me to Joe and sitting down with me after being an hour late. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Joseph can be found online at uh, biotechandbeyond.com. And uh, I can be found on Twitter.com slash K-A-N-Z-U-R-E. Uh, at Kanger. Kanger, right? Yeah, yeah. And gentlemen, like, I think this was actually as tangential as this podcast got. And we went from Bitcoin to transhumanism to Bitcoin to transhumanism. I think they're very intertwined. Oh, I absolutely. Think, I think they're very intertwined. I think you may need one to do the other. Um, Brian, do you have any parting notes on Bitcoin in particular? Um, anything you want to shout out? Um, you know, I mean, I guess I guess one thing that I keep repeating is um, if you really want to know how Bitcoin works, if you really want to figure out what all of this is, um, because like like from one level, like if you're new to Bitcoin, some of this sounds like a complete scam. This is like complete like horse crap. Um, the thing to do is go read the Bitcoin source code. There's real technology here that is actually doing something. And um, that that's where you can get your knowledge. Like if you don't trust people, trust code. Yeah, that's what actually I, I talked with uh, James Chang who's at the... Uh chain code residency this week and that's how he learned he read all of the bitcoin to teach himself bitcoin and was like oh this actually works and yeah. so that's from what i hear a good strategy to learn bitcoin uh gentlemen this was ex this far exceeded my expectations i did not uh this is now a transhuman transhumanism podcast thank you so much for sitting down with us <laughs> brian thank you for your <laughs> Had time a lot of fun man. thank you thank you Appreciate peace and love freaks <laughs>